All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 9 this evening, if you'd like to open up there. And I've entitled this message, Unto Us a Child is Born, from Isaiah 9 verse 6. We're going to spend the majority of tonight's time on the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9, but the rest of it we're just going to kind of quickly blow through uh, the rest of it. So we're going to spend a lot of time in the first seven verses, and then we're going to just kind of get through verses 8 through 21 to where we'll complete the chapter here. Uh, At least that's the plan, complete chapter 9 here uh, tonight. So Isaiah chapter 9, we can start in verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, for context here, we really need to back up to the end of the last chapter, because this is really one message. As you recall, uh, the chapters and the verses are not in the original text. If you went to look at, let's say, the Isaiah scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll find it's just one scroll, uh, or it may be multiple uh, copies of that scroll. Uh, But there's no chapters, there's no uh, chapter 1, chapter 9, chapter 66, like the book of Isaiah in our English translation, uh, has all of these chapters and verses. It's not there. The original text is just the words. It's the whole book in one scroll. So the theologians and those who are experts uh, in the ancient languages uh, have made it easier for us by putting in chapter breaks and putting in verses so that we can find out uh, when we want to look for a verse, John 3.16, for example, we know exactly where it is, and we can memorize it, or Romans 8.28, or Jeremiah 29.11, or all of those great scriptures. It, you know, it helps us to be able to kind of know where to look to find these, these promises in God's Word, but that's not how it was written originally. Uh, and so, as a matter of fact, in the original language, there's, there, there's uh, you know, it's just all together uh, and, and there's no commas, there's no uh, periods or, you know, I- any of that, it, it's, it's, or exclamation points. It's just the words, and the scholars have come in and have created the chapters for us to make it easier for us. But the problem sometimes with, with that is that we come to the end of a chapter and we think that's the end of the thought, <clears throat> but it's really not the end of the thought. It's just a good place where the scholars decided to put a chapter break And so we finish chapter 8, and we think, okay, that's the end of chapter 8, and then we start chapter 9. It's a new chapter. Um, And that is true, but it's still one continual thought from the original uh, writings. So when you see chapter 9, verse 1, really it ties back in to the last part, of course, of the previous chapter, which is uh, chapter 8. So chapter 8, verse 20, says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. 
Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. And then it gets right into uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom, the gloom of what? Of the darkness that he was just talking about uh, at the end of chapter 8. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, etc. But uh, the last part of chapter 8 is talking about when the Assyrians are going to come and, and basically bring the downfall of the nation of, of uh, Israel and the nation of um, Syria. So Damascus and Samaria. Damascus was the capital city uh, of Syria, still is actually today. Uh, and Samaria was the capital city of the ten northern tribes, the nation of Israel. Samaria was their capital city. And so... Um, in uh, Isaiah, the prophet, he kind of jumps around with his, with his prophecies. Some of them are way into the future. Some of them are still in the future for us today, related to the kingdom of Christ, the second coming of Christ, his, his reign upon the earth, and so forth. Uh, some, of, some of his prophecies pertain to what happened right then and there. Uh, and some of his prophecies came to pass decades after he prophesied. And so uh, he is here at the end of chapter 8, uh, basically telling them what's going to come upon their enemies. Remember, they were scared. Ahaz was afraid that the uh, Israelites and the Syrians were going to come down and conquer them and depose Ahaz as the king. And Isaiah, starting in, in chapter 7, Isaiah the prophet is encouraging Ahaz. No, God has a plan, and God is going to take out your enemies. You're not even going to have to worry about uh, Syria, and you're not going to have to worry about Israel. God is going to take them out. He's going to raise up Assyria to come against them. So when he's saying here that they're going to pass through the land, verse 21 of chapter 8, hard-pressed and hungry, and when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and curse uh, their king and their God and look upward. This is a very dark time uh, uh, about the nation of Israel when they're going to be carried away captive by the Assyrians. Very dark time. They're going to curse their king. They're going to curse God. They're going to be uh, enraged. It's going to be a time of despair. It's going to be a time of darkness. It's going to be a time of hopelessness. Uh, which would come upon them, uh, and, and which did come upon them. And the Assyrians, historians tell us, were terrible. They were terrible conquerors. I mean, they were brutal. Uh, they would maim the people. And we're going to see more about the Assyrians when the Assyrians come later and besiege Jerusalem uh, with King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, who was a good king. Hezekiah was a good king. And the Assyrians come down and they besiege Jerusalem. And the people are terrified because the Assyrians were so wicked, they were so intimidating, they would literally, if you would not totally capitulate to them and acquiesce to them and just, and just basically throw yourself on their mercy if they came to conquer you, uh, they, would, they, they, they wouldn't kill everybody, uh, but they would cut the noses off of people's faces. They would cut their ears off and they would cut their tongues out in order to terrify them and terrorize them. It was really psychological warfare to get people to just give in without fighting. 
uh, you know, if the Assyrians came and you resisted them, you were going to die or you were going to be maimed. And then you would be carried away captive to another land where you didn't speak the language, you didn't know the culture, uh, and, and you would lose your identity, actually, when they would carry you away captive to another land, to another nation, another part of their empire. And so it was a, it was a, it was a darkness, it was a despair, it was a hopelessness that the children of Israel were going to face, and Isaiah is telling them, they're going to come against Israel, your enemies, and they're going to carry them away captive, and it's going to be a time of terrible uh, darkness. Now, in 2 Kings in chapter 15, I'll read this to you quickly, 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 29, we read about the first part of the king of Assyria coming into the northern uh, land of Israel, the ten northern tribes. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Teglath, Peleazar, king of Assyria, came and took Ijon, Abelbeth, Mekah, Janoath, Kedesh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them away captive to Assyria. And so this was what was predicted by the prophet to happen, and this is the record of, of when it did happen. Uh, and then in 2 Kings 17, uh, verse 5, we read this about the king of Assyria coming down. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the capital of Israel, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against uh, the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. The first uh, siege and, and, and captivity of Assyria was in 734 B.C., historians tell us. Uh, but Samaria didn't fall until 721 B.C. So Samaria held out. The capital of Israel held out, although the northern part of Israel had fallen sooner than later. Samaria would fall, but not until 721 B.C. Um, but this is the area that we're talking about here, the area of uh, northern Galilee, northern Israel, the land of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. So again, we see here in chapter 9, and verse 1, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. So the prophet is now speaking of the area in northern Israel that would fall to the Assyrians in darkness, which of course would, would happen. Um, and he's saying that the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness 
have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now this is a future prophecy of Jesus Christ, the land of Galilee. That's where Jesus really had most of his ministry, was in the area of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, uh, the upper Galilee region, uh, Megiddo, and, and uh, Nazareth is where Jesus spent his childhood in Nazareth. And so Jesus was not from the religious center of Israel. That would have been Jerusalem. That's where all the priests were from, the Levites, and all the religious people were trained. Jesus was not from that area. He was from the area of Galilee. Galilee is a beautiful area if you've ever been there. Uh, they have all kinds of very interesting archaeological digs going on from the first century church period. Um, I've been on the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. I've been to the city of Capernaum, seen where uh, Peter lived and his uh, mother-in-law was healed by Jesus and so forth uh, in the Galilee region. But that's why they would say later to Jesus, to Jesus they'd say, what good is going to come out of Galilee, right? I mean, Galilee was known to be the area of the Gentiles. Why? Because the Gentiles conquered the land. The Assyrians conquered the land and carried away captive all the Jews and uh, basically, the, the tribes that were carried away captive never really came back from that captivity, at least not as an organized group of people. They were taken and transferred, and then they brought in the other captives from other areas that the Assyrians had conquered, and they planted them in Samaria, which is why the people hated the Samaritans. When Jesus was there, remember they didn't like the Samaritans because the Samaritans were not pure-blood Jewish. They uh, were people that were carried over by the Assyrians uh, into that northern Galilee region and the Samaria region, and they were not considered uh, to be uh, pure Jewish people. They were considered to be somewhat defiled by the Gentile kings, the pagans, and so forth. And so yet God is saying this area... Uh, that has been carried away captive, this area uh, of Zebulon and Naphtali, the northern and southern Galilee region of Israel, he's saying, although it's going to be bad, although they're going to be oppressed, the way of the Sea of the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles, so that's how the people referred to the Galilee region, they referred to it as Gentile territory, he says, the people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. And so if you remember, when we go back uh, in our study here, in chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah is already predicting and prophesying this one who's going to come, this this king who's going to come, who's going to bring peace, who's going to bring light, who's going to bring a a kingdom and a rule uh, to God's people and to the promised land. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, Isaiah said, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. It's interesting if you go to Israel today, there's people from all over the world, maybe not right now with COVID, but any other time besides the time of COVID, uh, they have people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, culture there in Israel, uh, in Jerusalem. To, to some degree, this is already happening in our day. All the nations are already flowing to Jerusalem, to the hill uh, of Zion that's going to be established above all the other nations and all the other hills. 
Verse 3 says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the prophet Isaiah was already speaking about this future kingdom, this future king who was going to come. And, and we see that he gives more and more detail. God gives more and more light to the prophet Isaiah that Isaiah then gives to the people of Israel that we can now look back on and we could read this for ourselves, that there's going to be a rule and a ruler that's going to come out of Zion. Then he's going to bring uh, peace to the world. This is Jesus. He's going to come back and he's going to bring peace to the world. Uh, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is going to bring peace to the earth at this time. There will be no more war. And all of the weapons of war will be converted into agricultural uh, instruments. You know, you take a sword, you take a spear, you turn it into a plowshare, you turn it into a pruning hook. Uh, we spend somewhere in the neighborhood, I think our last budget was somewhere in the neighborhood of $720 billion in our defense budget, just for the defense budget of the U.S. of A., United States of America. Uh, but if you take the defense budgets of all of the nations of the world today, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to $3 trillion a year. 2 to $3 trillion a year today is spent on military around the world, defense, military. If you add in the CIA, the FBI, all the black projects, it gets even much bigger in those projects that are buried into, uh, into the budget and things like this that are not specified. Uh, and then you think about all the black projects of China and of Russia and of Iran and so forth that are not publicly known. Uh, you're, you're talking trillions and trillions of dollars every year is spent on what? On war, on the war apparatus, on the ability to defend yourself against a foreign enemy uh, and to attack another country if you want to, uh, because, of course, military might is, is power uh, in this world, always has been. But that's a lot of money. Think about how many people you could feed around the world with $3 trillion a year to turn all of your military budget into agriculture to feed the world's population. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to bring when he comes back to the earth and he sets up his kingdom to rule and to reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth. In Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2, just as a reminder, we were here a few weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 2, another prophecy about Jesus. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped, and it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion remains in, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, 
Verse 5, Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and from rain. And again, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ when he is ruling and reigning over the earth. And at that point, all of Israel will be saved. They will be washed uh, from their uncleanness. This is Zion's universal reign, which is coming. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, you will remember, Isaiah the prophet said this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is here with us. And so we know that this one who's going to come, that's going to bring peace to the earth. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And man will not know war anymore. This one who's coming, uh, who's going to cleanse the nation of Israel and bring cleansing, healing, and peace to the nation of Israel for the first time really in their history. They'll have peace there in in the Middle East. Uh, He's going to come and be born of a virgin. That'll be a major sign. When you hear of a virgin having a baby, you know that's the one. And, of course, uh, we know that Jesus Christ uh, is the Messiah who was born uh, to the Virgin uh, Mary. Now, he's also a light, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. He is a great light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And so we know that this one who is coming is going to be a light to the Gentiles. And he's going to be a light that's going to come forth from where? From the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the area of Nazareth and the region of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We read in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6, Isaiah says this, the Lord speaking, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand, and I will, give, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, verse 9, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God says, I'm going to tell you the future before it happens, and you'll know that I am the true God, the true and living God. Only God can predict the future, and he predicts the future with 100% accuracy. Every single prophecy and prediction in the Old Testament has either already been fulfilled, literally, or will later, literally, be fulfilled. All of the prophecies in the New Testament, the same. They've either already been fulfilled or they will 
one day be fulfilled because God exists outside of space and time. He knows the future. He shares the future with his prophets. They write it down, and that is an evidence to us that God is God and that this is God's word. So Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 42 is speaking about the one who's going to come, who's going to be a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring prisoners out from prison, and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And we know again, this is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He is the light to the Gentiles. Again, the majority of the church is made up of non-Jewish people. The nation of Israel, primarily, overwhelmingly, at least the leaders of the nation of Israel, rejected Jesus Christ's deity. They rejected his claim to be the only begotten Son of God, uh, and they rejected uh, his message of salvation, the nation of Israel. And so that opened the door for the Gentile world. Jesus didn't come initially to the Gentiles. He said, I came to the house of Israel. Why would I give what is holy to the dogs? He told that one Gentile woman. Uh, who wanted him to help her. And so uh, Jesus came to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, but the Jews nationally rejected him. They said, we will not have this man to rule over us. They said, give us Barabbas. What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him, they said. And so because they rejected Jesus Christ, their Messiah, then that opened the door for the rest of the world to be saved and the Jews to be saved, of course, uh, but one day, all of Israel will be saved. For now, this prophecy has been fulfilled uh, in the last couple thousand years. Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. He opens blind eyes. Not only did he heal blind people, which he did do, people born blind, Jesus healed them many times, uh, but he brought prisoners out from the prison. Uh, those who were sitting in darkness. This is now speaking of spiritual prison, spiritual darkness, in bondage to the slavery and the bondage of sin. He came to set the captives free, and he indeed has done that for you and for me, those who have trusted in Christ. He's opened our blind eyes to see him and to know the truth, to no longer be bound in chains of darkness and of sin and, and bound to the the. the, the uh, slavery, as it were, to our flesh and our fleshly appetites. Now, in the New Testament, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, we read this about the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, we read this. And when Jesus heard that John had been in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, the two tribes that uh, had taken the land there, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You recognize that? We just read that in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus came and fulfilled that prophecy. And then verse 16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region uh, in shadow of death, light has dawned. And so he is here quoting Isaiah uh, 42, or applying Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, to this time. So Jesus came. Uh, he was the light of the world that came into the darkness, to the darkness of the Gentiles, and he still is the light of the world that comes into the lives uh, of unbelievers to, to save them, to heal them, and to redeem them. 
In John chapter 8 and verse 12, we read this about Jesus. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we know that all of these prophecies in Isaiah, speaking of the coming king and kingdom and Messiah, were fulfilled or will be fulfilled. Some of them are still future by Jesus Christ. It's speaking of him. So back in Isaiah 9, continuing in verse 3, for you, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. So remember, they were in darkness. They were depressed. They were being carried away captive, especially the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, at least at the time that, that Isaiah was, was writing this. And yet he's speaking of the future. There will be a time where this area, light's going to come forth from, from this area, speaking of Jesus, uh, and he's going to bring joy. Uh, there's going to be increased joy. They're going to rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, the joy that they had in an agrarian society when they went and picked all of their crops at the harvest time. It was a very joyful time. All of their hard work and labor uh, being brought to bear uh, at this time. The joy of the harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoils. Speaking of when a conquering army would win a war, then they would take the spoils of war to the victors go the spoils. And so he's saying it's going to go from a place of darkness and despair to a place of light and joy uh, in, this, in, in this time. Verse 4, he says, For you have broken the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So he's talking now about bondage, foreign occupation or oppression or being carried away captive. He says, you've broken the yoke of their burden. This would be the yoke of bondage upon their shoulders. The staff from their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor, that which their enemies would use to uh, beat them and humble them and keep them low and keep them down. He says that God is going to break this yoke. He's going to break the staff of, uh, on their shoulder and break the rod of his oppressor as he did in the days of Midian. You remember uh, Gideon's 300, his army of 300 went against uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites back in the book of Judges in chapter 7. And uh, Gideon went with 300 and God uh, fought for Gideon and for uh, the 300 faithful soldiers who were there with Gideon and wiped out. They wiped themselves out. Actually, they turned against each other, the Midianites and the Amalekites. But there were so many of them. It was 300 against hundreds of thousands. I mean, they were like locusts, they said, uh, on the field. There were so many of the enemy there. It was an impossible odds. There was no way 300 guys could have taken on all these soldiers. But God fought for them, and God destroyed their enemies there in Judges. He continues in verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Now, the historians tell us that the, uh, there was a lot of psychological warfare that the Assyrians used to intimidate people, to bully people into complete 
submission to their rule. And so when you would hear uh, the sandals of the warriors coming, marching toward your country, the hundreds of thousands of soldiers from, the, from Assyria marching against you to besiege you, and you know what they do to the people that try and resist them and fight against them, uh, then they would be terrified of this noise of the sandals of the enemy coming to, uh, to attack them. But he's saying even that, even the warrior's sandal from the noisy battle or the garments rolled in blood, apparently they used to take garments of people that they killed and bring out the garments of blood to show the people what's going to happen to you if you don't uh, basically submit to us and surrender to us. This is what happened to the last nation that stood against us. Here's their blood and their garments to intimidate the people into acquiescing and submitting uh, to their rule, the Assyrian rule. And he says all of these things, these methods of intimidation, their, their warrior sandals, the garments that they bring that are rolled in blood, they're going to be used for burning and for fuel of fire. You're going to use them uh, to, to burn for your own uh, um, energy needs there uh, in this area. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this so now Isaiah is zeroing in once again on this one who's going to come and giving us great detail of this one who's going to come this light in the Gentiles is going to come from the area of the Galilee and that is going to give them victory over their enemies and bring them uh, peace he says, for unto us a child is born. Obviously, Isaiah chapter 7, four, verse 14 tells us that it's going to be a virgin who's going to conceive and bring forth uh, a child. Uh, and she will call him Emmanuel, or uh, he will be called Emmanuel, which is God is with us. So now we know this child is coming of the virgin. And, and he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. No doubt the us uh, is speaking uh, specifically to the Jews, to, to Israel, unto us, Israel, a child is born, unto us, Israel, a son is given. But, but then it, it's open to all of us for the whole world. Jesus came to be a Savior for the whole world. So unto all of us, a child is born and a son is given. It's interesting that it's going to be a child who's going to be born. Obviously, it's going to be a male child, a son who's going to be born. And unto us, a son is given. So you have a child born to a virgin, and then you have a son given by God, God's only begotten son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is the fulfillment in John uh, chapter 3, hear of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Unto us a son is given. The only begotten son of God is given to us through this child who is born to the virgin. And the government 
will be upon his shoulder. He's going to have a rule. He's going to have a rod of iron, according to Psalm chapter 2. As a matter of fact, Psalm chapter 2 is such a, uh, an amazing uh, prophecy about Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn here real quick. Psalm chapter 2 talks about his, his rod of iron, his rule, and the fact that he is called the Son of God. We read in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. And today I have begotten you, the only begotten Son of God. A son will be given. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, and blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is the Old Testament, speaking of the Son of God who's going to come, and who's going to rule and reign over all the earth with a rod of iron, and destroy all of God's enemies. And he's saying, be careful, you kings, be wise, be instructed, you judges, fear the Lord, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son or worship the Son, bow down and pay homage to the Son. Uh, the picture would be a king who puts forth his scepter and the people would bow before the king and kiss his scepter or a ring and put forth his hand. They would bow down and kiss the ring of the king or of the king's son, the prince, the heir to the throne. And he's, he's saying, this is the one who's coming. He's going to come and he's going to judge the nations of the earth. He's going to rule over the earth with a rod of iron. He's going to break them down and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And if you were wise, you would submit to him. You would humble yourself before him. You would kiss the son and reverence him and worship him, lest the son become angry and his wrath is kindled. You know, when Jesus comes back the second time, he's going to come back in judgment. The first time he came as a savior, the second time he comes back, he will come back as a judge. The first time he came as a baby, uh, born to a virgin. The second time he comes, he's going to come as a king in his glory, on his white horse, with a sword that proceeds forth from his mouth to destroy the devil, the Antichrist, and all of the armies of the earth that are following Satan and following the Antichrist. He's going to obliterate all of his enemies, and he's going to save his people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, when he returns uh, at the end of the tribulation period. So the second time that Jesus comes, he's coming as a conquering king. The first time he came as the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. A lamb led to the slaughter without even opening his mouth, as a lamb is led silently before the slaughter or the shearer, so he will not open his mouth in defense. That's his first coming. The second time he's going to come as the lion, roaring as the lion of the tribe of Judah to come and destroy the enemies of God and to set up his kingdom upon the earth. Indeed, the governments of the world will be upon his shoulders. He is going to rule and reign over all the earth, and he will rule and reign forever 
and ever. Back again in chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. Uh, Interesting about his government, verse 7 says this, Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He's going to have an eternal reign, an everlasting government. There'll be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Jesus, right now the government that he has is a spiritual government. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. He is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is still to come. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom has not come yet. He has a spiritual kingdom because he's the king over your heart if you are surrendered to Christ and the Holy Spirit is living within you and Jesus is on the throne of your heart. He has a kingdom, but it's not a material, physical kingdom at this time. It's a spiritual kingdom ruling over his people in our hearts. Uh, But he will come back and he will have a literal, physical kingdom upon this earth earth. It hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. Every other prediction and prophecy from the Bible has already come to pass, and there are still some prophecies that are yet to uh, come to pass. Now, this idea of his having a reign uh, from the throne of David and an, an eternal reign is what we're talking about here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It's going to be a reign that's going to be forever. Only God can reign forever. If Jesus was just a man, he couldn't reign over the earth or over the universe forever and ever. But if he's God, he can. He's eternal. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, as God was giving the promise of this eternal kingdom to one of the seed of David, we read this in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, seed, his offspring, who will come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rods of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. He's of the uh, tribe of Judah the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is of the throne of David, of the lineage and the family of David, both through Mary, traced her lineage to David, uh, and so did Jesus' stepdad, Joseph, traced his lineage back to David. It's interesting that verse 14 says, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. We know he didn't have any iniquity of his own, of his own but he took the iniquity of us all upon himself, and he took the blows and the judgment of God upon himself uh, for our iniquities. He took uh, the rods of men and the blows of the sons of men for you and for I. An eternal kingdom, an everlasting throne. In Psalm 89 and verse 3, another prophecy here about the king who is to come from David. I 
have made a covenant, Psalm 89.3, with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Now, there is no king in Judah today. Matter of fact, there hasn't been a king in Judah ruling from Jerusalem for thousands of years. So we know that this is a future king, a future kingdom that is not, it has not happened yet. It's going to come. He's going to come because God says it's going to be the seed of David, it's going to be a forever kingdom, and it's going to be a throne that's going to be for all generations. This is speaking of no one but Jesus Christ. Skipping to verse 19 of Psalm 89, he says this, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted, and I will set his hand over the sea, and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep with him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the day's of heaven. His throne's going to be eternal. It's going to be forever. Speaking of this one who's going to come through David, he says in verse 30, if his sons forsake my law, they do not walk in my judgments. If they break my statutes, do not keep my commandments. I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant, I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. This is a kingdom that is still to come. Jesus has a kingdom coming. His kingdom will come. He will have a government and the government will be upon his shoulders. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 31, we read this, speaking about Jesus when he was uh, uh, coming and, and, and Mary hearing that she was going to bring forth the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. An eternal reign. An eternal reign that is still yet future. Now, he's reigning right now over the hearts of his people. He has a kingdom, but it's not physical yet. It's a spiritual kingdom. And, and, and so he has his kingdom in our hearts but he will one day have a literal, physical kingdom here upon the earth. 
So again, back in chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah, for unto us a child is born. This is the, the child born to the virgin of Isaiah seven fourteen. Unto us a son is given. This is the son, the only begotten son of God. Today thou art my son. I have begotten thee, God said in Psalm chapter 2. He says, continuing, the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we have been doing a study on the deity of Christ on Sunday mornings. We'll do one more teaching on the deity of Christ this Sunday. I encourage you to listen to the other messages if you weren't here. Uh, because the Bible declares to us that Jesus is God. He is God and man. He is the God-man. He's a child born. He's a son given. God gave us his only begotten son. He's going to have a government, a kingdom that will reign forever and ever. And his name is going to be called all of these wonderful titles. His name is going to be called Wonderful. Now we know that uh, Wonderful was the uh, description of the captain of the Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord, back in the book of Judges, uh, where the captain of the Lord of, of hosts appeared. And uh, he says, you know, it's, he's wonderful. Do you not know that I'm wonderful? Uh, and, and it was God speaking. It was a Christophany, an Old Testament uh, appearance of Jesus Christ uh, there in Judges chapter 13, the captain of the Lord of hosts, and his name is wonderful. He's, he's wonderful. He's full of wonder and, and awe. He is also uh, a counselor. He's the counselor. He is the wise counselor. He gives us true wisdom. He gives us counsel. He gives us guidance. He is our counselor through his Holy Spirit, through his word. He counsels his people. He gives us wisdom. He gives us instruction. He teaches us right and wrong, truth and error, and he teaches us light uh, compared to darkness. He is wonderful, and he is our counselor. And now we're told that he's God, mighty God. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. El Gabor in Hebrew, Mighty God. Now we know in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21 that this is speaking of only the Mighty God of Israel. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 21 says, The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the Mighty God. And so the mighty God is used to speak of God the Father or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 21. And that same word is used to describe the child who will be born to us, the son who will be given to us. He will be called mighty God. Now the New Testament, of course, tells us this as well, that Jesus is God. In Titus in chapter 2, in verse 13, I'll read this to you. Titus 2, verse 13 says this, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus Christ is called our great God and Savior. He is God. It's hard for us to wrap our minds about, around that. A lot of people have a hard time with the deity of Christ, but it is nonetheless true. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son, and He is the only begotten. 
Son of God, uh, the monogenous, the one who is the carbon copy of God. That's why he would say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He's also called, back in Isaiah 9, 6, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. He's called the everlasting Father here in this prophecy, way back in the book of Isaiah. So although he's not going to be the Father, he's going to be just like the Father. He's exactly like the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we're told this about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it says that he, Jesus, is the brightness of the glory of God the Father, and the express image of his person. He's exactly like his father. Exactly like his father. He's the perfect image of God. Again, if you want to know what God is like, you need to study the life and the teachings of Jesus, and you will learn uh, what God is like because Jesus is God. He's the only begotten Son of God. He also is called the Prince of Peace. Remember, he's going to bring peace to our world, the Prince of Peace, Shalom or Shalom. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings peace into our world. Jesus said, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. And once you have peace with Jesus, then you have peace with God. And once you have peace on the vertical level between you and God, you're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer at war with God. You're now uh, a son or a daughter of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have, you have peace with God, and now you can have peace with man. You can have peace with others, with one another. Once you have the vertical peace established, then it makes the horizontal peace possible. If you don't have peace vertically with God, you'll never have peace horizontally with man. It's hard enough even for Christians to be at peace with each other, my goodness, and churches and all the rest. Uh, but it ought not to be that way because we all have the Prince of Peace and we are called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, uh, Jesus said. And so Jesus came uh, to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. <clears throat> In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6, we see a picture of the peace that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to one day bring to this earth. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
This is the millennial reign of Christ when he comes back and he conquers the devil and he casts the devil uh, into uh, the abyss and he, and he casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, he's going to come. He's going to establish this thousand-year reign, this millennial king uh, kingdom where he will be over the earth. And even nature is going to be at peace with each other. It's going to be like it was before the fall of man. Before the fall of man, we're told that the animals and the humans, actually, were vegetarians. That the animals ate grass uh, like an ox. I mean, you're talking the, the lions, the bears, all of these carnivorous animals before uh, the fall. They didn't kill each other. There was no death. And so animals didn't kill each other and eat each other uh, before the fall of Adam and Eve because the fall brought death, and that's what changed everything. The curse came upon. And then animals turned wild and violent and started to kill each other and eat each other. Man actually was not given permission to eat meat or to eat the flesh of animals until after Noah's flood. Uh, they were vegetarians up until after Noah's flood, and that's when God gave man uh, permission to eat animals. Before that, man did not eat animals. He just ate as it were as a vegetarian. And the animals, you know, um, I see my dogs sometimes eating grass in the backyard, and it reminds, it reminds me of this prophecy, you know. Uh, you know, of course, he'd prefer meat. He'd prefer probably raw meat, uh, but he'll eat grass sometimes, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the panda, these huge panda bears will eat bamboo. They're really vegetarians. Bears will eat leaves and honey and, you know, different things. These wild boars will eat acorns. You know, animals can live off of uh, uh, food other than eating other animals, even, even in nature today. But um, this is going to be a reverse of the curse that came upon the earth. And as, as Jesus Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, there will be peace among men, peace with God, and peace among all of creation. Even the animals will be at peace with one another. These are prophecies that are yet to come. He continues in verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Speaking of the one who is to come, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is a forever king. Only God can be a king forever. Any other man would die eventually and his kingdom would end. Uh, but Jesus, the son of David, is going to come and he is going to reign and rule over the earth forever and ever. First for a thousand years and then forever and ever. I love the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. I'll read this to you in verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man. This is all in the Old Testament, guys. The son mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament idea, the Son of God, the Son of Man. I was watching the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the one who was sitting on the throne. In verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. Here is the Son of Man that comes up, Old Testament, comes up to the Ancient of Days, a heavenly scene that Daniel is recording. It says, he came to the Ancient of Days, the this, this Son of Man. They brought him near before him, verse 14. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one which shall never be destroyed. Who else is this speaking of if it's not speaking of Jesus Christ? The Son of Man who comes before the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom that's going to be forever and ever and ever and rule over all the nations of the earth, every tongue and tribe and nation. It's Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray now and forever. Amen. He's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And when he reigns, he will bring justice to the earth. He will establish righteousness upon the earth. And the result of God ruling over his people for the first time really since before the fall in the Garden of Eden, there will be peace upon the earth because the Prince of Peace will be the king over all the earth at that time. Now, quickly back in chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on the Syrians before the Philistines behind and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still so Isaiah uh, 9 really verses 1 through 7 were a future prophecy about Jesus Christ coming the light among the Gentiles from Galilee and so forth unto us a child is born unto us a son is given the wonderful Handel's Messiah song uh, but now he's turning back to the present time. And he's talking about, again, pivoting back to the present time. He was looking at the future. Now he's turning back to the present and saying that this is going to come against uh, these who were going to come against you, Judah, uh, Israel, uh, Jacob, those who uh, are rebelling and those who are into um, um, false pagan worship and so forth. And they were going to be carried away captive uh, by the Assyrians. But it says that they had pride and arrogance of heart that when the enemies were coming and already beginning to destroy the northern areas of Israel as they were making their way to the southern part uh, and to Samaria, the capital city, they were saying, we're just going to rebuild, you know. They're going to come down. The Assyrians are going to take down our buildings and cut down our trees and so forth. We'll just rebuild. We'll replant even stronger than before uh, because of their arrogance. It was the judgment of God coming upon them because of their wickedness. And yet they weren't going to turn back to God and humble themselves. They thought they could bail themselves out and, and, and fix everything on their own, by their own power, by their own hand. And God is saying, no, it's, it's not going to work because God's anger uh, is stretched out still against you. Verse 13 says, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. So when the Lord is disciplining you, the best thing you could do is soften your heart, humble yourself, repent and turn to God and let God help you. But if God is disciplining you, chastising you, you're hardening your heart, you're digging in, you're, you're, you're backing up against the wall and you're saying, I'm not going to humble myself before God. I'm going to bail myself out of this situation. You're in big trouble because at that point you're fighting against God. You're not fighting against the circumstances 
circumstances or the people in your life. This is God's judgment upon his people, for judgment begins in the house of God. The Lord disciplines us if we are his children, and we are to humble ourselves and repent and turn to him. That's not what they were doing, the nation of Israel. He says, for the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, or the false prophet, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and their widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. My goodness, you could apply that to America today and the European countries today. Wicked leaders, false prophets, you know, uh, God is saying everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone's mouth is full of folly. Everyone's an evildoer. In other words, everyone is doing what's right in his own eyes, and man's heart and thoughts are only evil continually when you have rejected God uh, and you think that you don't answer uh, to God for your life and for your actions and for your words. He says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, his hand of judgment upon Israel. Verse 18, for wickedness burns as the fire, it shall devour the briars and the thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. Fire being a judgment of God upon his people. Interesting. We have fires that get worse every year in California. Half the state is on fire right now. Every year we have these fires that get worse and worse and worse and worse. And this was a judgment of God upon his people Israel uh, here in the book of Isaiah. The fires burning that you will not be able to extinguish. He says, no man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. So he's saying that when this judgment comes and the Assyrians did come, there's going to be a siege, which there was, and there's going to be cannibalism, that people are going to be eating the flesh of one another. They're going to be killing one another to take the food because they're going to be literally starving to death. And this is exactly what happened to the ten northern tribes of Israel uh, who Ephraim and Manasseh, are the sons of Joseph, speaking of the nation of Israel, the northern tribes were conspiring to come against the southern tribe of Judah, and uh, God says that he, he's not going to let them uh, um, attack Judah or destroy Judah. God is going to fight uh, against even his own people, Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your promises, Jesus, that you're going to come back again. You, you told us, Lord, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are preparing a home for us now and that you're going to come back again for us, Lord. 
Uh, We look forward to your return. We look forward to you coming and making everything right. We look forward to you coming and judging uh, the devil and judging all of those who are following after evil, Lord, and to rescue and to preserve the righteous ones, Father. How we need your help in our world today, Lord. We pray that you would stir us up. We pray, Lord God, you would wake us up and we would see how late the hour is, Lord God, that the end is so near. Help us to live in a way where we are looking for you, we're living for you, we're watching for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.